You are listening to the Pencil and Paper Podcast Network. Visit PencilandPaperProductions.Podbean.com to find more great podcasts. Welcome to Cinema Salsa, your tasty condiment of film talk. I'm your smooth and mild, I said wild, I'm your smooth and mild host, Stephen White, and with me is my extremely spicy co-host, Philip Peck. I'm not spicy. Um, (laughs) I am the opposite. The opposite? So you're mild? I'm mild. Well, I might be, is there something lower than mild? I don't think so. Is there a catatonic spice? (laughs) There could be. So I love have to spicy dig into food, that. but I don't quite mirror that in my personality. See, I was going to call myself, um, what was it, smooth and chunky. But I was like, well, then I'm saying I'm fat. And I don't feel like I'm fat. I'm a little chunky, but I mean, not that well, chunky. So. I'm definitely chunky. <laughs> so smooth, mild, chunky. I mean, I'm trying to hit all the, the bases of salsa. We eventually. are a, an exquisitely crafted and blended ingre- uh, flavor. Oh, shit. We we got you covered. We got you covered on the salsa part. <laughs> it's the condiment. That's that's why we're here. So how's your week been? I don't know. Has it been a week already since we recorded? I mean, I feel like I am living for these podcasts in a way. It's strange. I it do is. a lot of things in between, but they are just, they're almost like dreams. And then <laughs> I wake up and here we are again. But it's fun. I mean, it's it's nice when you've got a, a something to look forward to, a nice little conversation. You know, you're gonna have fun. Yeah. And and I've got two of these now, so I, I I like I like it. Yeah. Everybody should do a podcast. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. Um, <laughs> I mean, just for their own, you know, well being, mental health, and just something to schedule their week around. It's very strange. Like we, you know, I we haven't. I don't. We haven't even posted a podcast yet, have we? Technically, no, but hopefully within the next week of by the time we've actually recorded this, um, July, we're still in June, but by July, they'll be out because I've got I've got a schedule in my head. Well, I'm just saying that because, you know, I have no expectation that this is ever going to be anything monetarily beneficial. It's just something to do for fun and just Mm -hmm. put out and to and to create something. But it seems like even though I work, you know, and make money doing other things, those things are, I don't know, they've been dulled a bit. They've been dulled by this podcast. Oh, okay. Steven. <laughs> that makes me feel good. I, I think <laughs> because now you have something uh, positive to look forward to versus everything else that yeah. you're doing. And this I teach the bright spot. Yeah, I know. I, I teach, uh, I teach video production at a local art college, for-profit college and, uh, the students can be a handful, and sometimes they really they get you down a little bit. So, so are nice they are they open to what you have to say? Or some of them, you know, it you know, it's every student is, is in his or her or their own place, and okay. some are very receptive to learning, and some aren't. And I I I try to be empathetic. When I was that age, I had no goals. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I feel like a lot of them are probably the same way. And mm-hmm. I envy the people who are that age that actually do know what they want. Yeah. But that was never me. I I could say 
at an early age, I knew what I wanted to do, but I wish that I had the passion to follow through with the the idea because from a young age and i don't know if i've even shared this on any other podcast or anywhere else but i film acting direct well i wouldn't even say directing let's say acting acting was my first love from way back as a kid like i wanted to be an actor i wanted to be an entertainer i wanted to, to be on stage and just doing whatever like i would pretend i had my own tv show that's how committed to it I was and it stuck with me for years and then as a teenager as I was kind of getting into comic books I used that idea as kind of a catalyst to write my stories so now I could visualize it on paper so I mean they're crude I've still got a lot of notebooks (laughs) with these these crude drawings and stories they're not great stories don't don't let me mislead you. I wasn't like some savant writing these amazing tales or anything like that. They were crappy, but they were there. You know, I had the passion. I was just always drawing, always writing. And by the time I reached my adulthood, it was still there, but I veered off in the, I don't want to say wrong direction, in a different direction. And I never followed through the way I should have. Because if I'd have had that real passion, if the passion would have just really been there, I think I'd have, I would have. I don't know where my life would be right now. I don't want to say that I would have. I would have made it. Um, well, I think it's difficult. Like to, I think a lot of people characterize things, or like they 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 characterize the the fact that they didn't get where they wanted to be, or they didn't follow their passion, quote unquote. But I think that's almost selling yourself short in a way that. I think in order to follow your passions, things have to be set up for you in a way in your life mm-hmm. that isn't isn't possible for everybody. Yeah, uh, you have to be in the right position. You have to have gone to the. Um, you have to have the right opportunities. You have to know the right people. Go to the right school. All those kinds of things have to fall into place, and it's easy for the people who make it to say, "I followed my passion," versus the people who didn't quite get there to say. Well, I didn't follow my passion, but the reality is you didn't have all the same opportunities or the things weren't in the in the place for you and you and life happens. You have to live your life. You have to pay your bills, you have to eat. You have a family. All these things happen where it's like it's easy to say I didn't have what it took or I didn't follow my passion when the reality is the people who make it in 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 doing the thing that they want to do I think everything has to go right. Mm-hmm. And they have to be, I just think, I think it's, a, I think it's a lot of luck. Not to say, I don't want to shortchange people's talent and drive and all those things. That's important. But you probably have just as much talent and drive as some of the people who made it, but things didn't quite fall into place. You know, does that make sense? No, absolutely. What you're saying right there, I was actually trying to remember a quote and it came from Rob Paulson who's a voice actor, and he's said several times he had a podcast at one time where he was talking about uh, or talking to voice actors about their careers and everything like that. And one thing he's always stuck by is the careers that a lot of these people have is a combination of opportunity and luck. Now, he's he says it in a very uh, 
proper way that it makes it sound like it's a, a beautiful quote, the way he kind of mm -hmm. lays it out there. But that's what it essentially comes down to. There's an opportunity and you're lucky enough to have hit that opportunity at the right time. And boom, that's what yeah. happens. So everything you just said is that in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot things are changing now I a little bit. But, you know, a lot of artists, they come from they come from privilege. They come from wealthy families. And that's what arts society doesn't need artists. Artists are only possible when society has a surplus of resources when people can just stop producing in order to live and actually do something that is outside of that whole um, survival aspect. So it is a very privileged position to be in, to be an artist. And that's, I want to be an artist. I'm not, yeah. I'm not knocking it, but I think that's, how, that's a reality. So people who make it often come from privilege. I don't know where, I don't know your background. I don't know how you, I don't know where you how you grew up or where you grew up and all those kinds of things, but uh, I think if you don't come from privilege, uh, you are or you know, like I said, things have to be set up in a way for you to be able to pursue what it is you want to do, and if you don't have those opportunities and things aren't set up in a way for you, you're at a you're at a disadvantage. Yeah, absolutely. Where, is this part of the the show? I think. Well, this is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe we're actually giving some people some advice, so they're actually kind of looking at it, going, "Huh, I never thought about it that way." Because, yeah. to your point, I, I didn't grow up in a privileged situation. Uh, I didn't have money. I didn't have a lot of things. My parents did pretty well, but I wouldn't say that I was. I don't want to say that I was poor, but I wasn't rich either. I'd say we were okay. We mm -hmm. did all right, but. Even even a lot of the stuff that I do um, or have done in the past, because I don't want to say that I do a lot of stuff now. Uh, the podcasts that uh, you know I'm currently doing, whether it's this or Super Mega Crash Brothers Turbo, they they've provided a new creative outlet for me. Whereas YouTube was something that I was passionate about for a while, and I think I overworked myself. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say that for sure, but. I still do have that passion, but this is this is kind of a nice um, way to kind of keep keep being creative without uh, doing that other stuff. Because I'd say without the podcast, I would have I would have pretty much hit a wall and I would have been through a drought again. Because yeah. I did do that between two thousand four and maybe two thousand eleven, I had a drought. Well, 2005, 2005, and I had a drought. Like, I was working on things I wanted to do, and then suddenly it just stopped because I had nothing else to do or had no one else to help me with it. And then mm -hmm. I tried it again. Drought around 2016, it started to pick up again. And then there's a stretch where I was just working constantly. I mean, you can go on my YouTube, and there's just a stretch of videos week after week after week after week. And then the wall hit again. You know, the well dried up, except for this. Or the podcast. So I'm appreciative of the podcast realm for allowing me to still produce pod or produce content in a way that may not have been or possible at some point. Um, so I'm, I'm appreciative of that. And if I don't ever make it anywhere, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm still working to get there if, if possible, maybe. And whether I get to enjoy it a long period of time or not, I don't care. But... Um, I'd still like to do it as a job. 
Yeah. Well, it's about, you know, it's super cliche, but it's about the journey as opposed to the destination. And regardless whether you ever get to the final destination, as long as you stay on that journey and keep doing the thing that somehow making room for the thing that makes you happy and the thing that really interests you and motivates you, then I think that's the important thing. Because, you know, we're, we'll, we're about to get super existential and dark here. But we're all going to die, and nobody gives a shit what happens after we die. <laughs> and uh, so, while you're here, then just do, you know, do the things that you want to do, yeah, to the extent that you can. Yeah, exactly. I mean, for, for is two things that I try to keep in my head at least now. Uh, one, Samuel L. Jackson was 47 when he had his first movie role. That's something I keep in the back of my head. I'm not there yet. So he was 47, 47. It blows my mind. Wow. Yeah. He's been making movies forever. That's what it feels like. 47. It's just, it's mind boggling to me. So what was he doing before that? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I I, I need to look at that. But another thing I like to kind of keep in the back of my head is even if it never goes anywhere, the content that I have, Maybe, hopefully, one day we'll find an audience, whether Mm -hmm. it's within my lifetime or not. And even if it doesn't, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, this stuff will be there, hopefully, unless YouTube falls apart, uh, but I'll still have hard copies. It'll still be there. So hopefully they can see that as a window back in time and be like, oh, that's, you know, a relative of mine from way back when, and look what he was doing here. Maybe. I don't know. They could look at it and say this is garbage. If you don't have anything else in here, we'll, we'll talk about movies now. So uh, what, what, have we, what have you been watching? Steven, I regret to inform you that I didn't watch anything. <laughs> don't feel bad. I don't think. <laughs> I must have watched something. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I did. What about you? How? What have you watched? Well, I would also say that I, I felt like I had not watched anything, but the more I thought about it, I was like, well, I kind of have, but nothing new to speak of, except for maybe one thing. Um, last week on the last drive-in, they showed a movie called Evil Speak. Have you ever heard of that? I have not. I've not. I've not heard about it either. But um, it featured Clint Howard, which I don't know if you're a fan of his or not. But he's a, he's a, it's Ron Howard's brother, if you don't know who Clint Howard is. And he's, he's kind of one of those actors that always pops up in a movie here or there. Um, There's rare few movies that he's actually been the star of. And this is one of those. I think another one that comes to mind, which I've never seen, but I've seen it on Amazon. is kind of like, hey, maybe you might want to watch this. It's called The Ice Cream Man, which is a horror movie. This is also a horror movie. Uh, and the movie, I, I don't want to say it's like great. Uh, I mean, it's, it wasn't bad for an eighties devil worshiping <laughs> horror flick because it was about this kid. Uh, I think he was in a military school, if I'm not mistaken. And somehow he comes into possession of some ancient ritual texts from some priest, some Satanist priest from way back, way back when, which they actually start the movie with that guy 
played by Richard Mall, who a lot of people, if you're as old as we are, might remember him as Bull from uh, Night Court. And he performs some ritual, and then they come back around present day 80s, and somehow the the Satanistic being possesses his computer, <laughs> and now all this stuff is going through his computer, and then he gets powers to take revenge on the people who killed his dog because they were assholes. That was kind of sad. This is like the pro, pre, uh, precursor to John Wick. Like what? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I said. Because when they killed his dog, it's like, oh shit, he's about to go John Wick on some people. Because that's what it boiled down to. Like he was he was being picked on by these guys, but once they killed his dog, it was all over with. It's like nope, that was game over right there. Yeah, and then he turns into like super powered Clint Howard. Hey, that rhymed, and then just started killing people, and it was insane. But. I think the coolest part of the whole show was they actually spoke to Clint Howard and he's such a humble guy. You know, he's who is Clint Howard? I am not you, familiar with him. I guarantee you, you see his face and you'd be like, oh, yeah, that guy. You might not know his name, but like I said, he's he's Ron Howard's brother. Uh, he, he actually made his oh, start. OK, OK, OK. Yeah, he gotcha. He made his start. Just Googled him. He made. So he st he started this movie. Yeah. And he was he was he was very he was the. The enforcer or the person who went on the revenge? Yes. Uh, oh, okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Not the kind of person that you would think would... Exactly. <laughs> do that. Yeah. I mean, in the in the movie, you feel so bad for the guy because he's being shit on by all these jerk asses in the movie. Uh, one in particular, I don't know if you remember that 70s show or not, but the yeah. guy that played uh, Bob, the next door neighbor, Donna's mm -hmm. father, he was one of the guys... And talk about it, like looking completely different. I mean, so they made a movie with instead of hiring a movie actor, hmm. they went and hired a bunch of role playing TV stars, uh, not even stars, but people who played <laughs> the other guy in, in a TV show. Yeah. That was interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And Ron Howard, or excuse me, Clint, Clint, Clint Howard. Uh, the neighbor from that 70s show, the uh, bailiff from Night Court, <laughs> the bailiff, the bailiff from Night Court. Yeah. And I'm sure there were a few other faces in there, too, that I just don't remember. Those are the three that stuck stuck in my head. Um, but like I said, it wasn't it wasn't a bad sideshow. Bob from The Simpsons was the villain. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like I said, it wasn't a bad movie. It's just you, I guess you'd have to be in the mood for it. Uh but what I found the most entertaining out of the whole thing is that, uh, again, this is part of the last drive-in. Joe Bob was actually talking to Clint Howard live, uh, just talking about the movie, the experience, and stuff like that. And he actually spoke about the scene about the dog when the dog died. And he got choked up as he's sitting there talking about it. And you're just like, don't, don't start crying, Clint Howard. Please don't start crying about the dog right now. And he said he just he had this memory that helped him get into that to that moment in the scene to help him kind of break down about it. And it was just, it's so sad, but they, they paid him such loving homage at the end, saying a little song. And they even had Ron Howard <laughs> show up like briefly just to kind of uh, serenade his brother. So I was just like, that's, you can't beat that. That's, that's amazing. Um, That is a very fascinating sounding movie. Yeah. But, that was about the only movie, new movie, new to me, 
that I watched. Uh, is there anything you've been wanting to watch this week? If any of the listeners don't know about Letterboxd, mm-hmm. please, uh, it's a it's a fantastic social media platform for film lovers that you can log all the movies that you watch on it. And while we were talking, I logged in and was like, oh, wait, I did watch a few things because I logged them. I watched Minari. That's a what's his name? Ah, the actor. Uh, The actor's name is Stephen Yun. So, yeah, that I watched that. That was one of the Oscar Best Picture noms, and I think it won something in the last. But yeah, it's one of those movies that came out, came and went in terms of the broader culture, but uh, had a little bit more of a lifespan just because of the award season. Uh, my wife and I rented that and watched that a few days ago, and we also watched This Is Forty. I've, I've seen a bunch of uh, Judd Apatow movies, but I'd never watched that one. Uh, so yeah, those are the two movies that I actually did watch in the, in the intervening week that I forgot about. So I watched this is 40 in my thirties. So maybe I should watch it now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Now that I'm in my forties, it had a special resonance, yeah. but I was mostly jealous of the fact that not, well, not that their lives were falling apart and they were losing everything. Uh, spoiler alert, but I've never even gotten that far. So, uh, there was a little bit of, of jealousy, but yeah. I did. I did really like Minari. It was very. Um, I, I. I. I do like. I like dramas that are very understated. They're not overacted. They're not overwritten. They're not overplayed. And yeah, this was kind of like right up my wheelhouse. And yeah, yeah. It was. You know, it's impactful without being in your face about it. So yeah, it's it's definitely one on my radar. I want to watch. Um, I like Stephen Young. Mm-hmm. I, I know that he's been. Kind of dabbling in both worlds where he's doing live action acting and he's been doing a lot of voice work. Have you seen Burning? In fact, I have not. Mm -mm. Okay. So he was in, so that's a, I think that movie's still on Netflix. Um, And it's, that's a Korean movie. Uh, I don't know the other people involved. I I don't know their names or the director, but it's fantastic. He plays kind of like a low key serial killer potentially. But it's a it's a really really interesting movie. I would super, I would really highly recommend that if you want to watch something else that he's been in in the last three or four years. Mm-hmm. Have you watched Invincible on Amazon? No. He does the voice of the main character on that show. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> it's such an amazing show because I'll say this because I don't want to give anything away. It starts off. Very generic, but I think that was its purpose because it wants to lull you into this sense of familiarity. It's just like, oh, okay, so it's kind of like this. Ah, it's kind of like that. And then as soon as you get right there at the end, hard right turn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then everything shifts and you're like, oh, okay, so we're not, we're okay. This is not the same thing that I thought it was. Gotcha. And then it's just, it's fantastic. Fantastic. It's it's such a great adaptation of a what you would consider a very familiar story. So I'll just leave it at that. Give the first episode a watch, and if you're not hooked by the end of the, the first episode, then nothing will hook you. Because I feel like yeah, that's, those, um, that's the thing that'll that'll do it. Right. That's on my radar. Yeah. But uh I, I got nothing that I really want to watch outside of the stuff that I kind of mentioned. 
<laughs> last yeah. week or the week before. I'm it, it's been hectic, damn it. I want I want I'm ready for a vacation. I'm ready for a vacation, that's for sure. So why don't we get into our weekly topic? Cuz since we've, you know, bullshitted <laughs> for how long now? It's fine. Yeah, it's been it's been a, almost a whole episode's worth of uh yeah, hopefully Sidebar. hopefully all of you will just enjoy all the stuff that we kind of threw out here <laughs> because I think it's good I think it's good content. Uh the weekly topic we're we're going to focus on this week are remakes and reboots. And I really don't want to say I guess we just want to talk about them in general and and I guess the good, the bad and if there's an ugly side, sure. Uh, it's Hollywood recycling itself, in a way. And we're not just seeing it in movies now, we're seeing it in television, uh, which I never thought we'd see, but here we are. So, What are the TV episodes that have been recycled, or the TV shows? TV shows, well, let's see. Uh, Magnum P.I. was oh, one. Right. okay. Hawaii uh, Five-0. Yeah, Hawaii Five-0, Golden Girls. Um, Golden Girls? Golden Girls. I Are you serious? I have not seen this. I don't even know if it's aired yet, but it was How Golden Girls. But instead of four older white ladies, it's four older black ladies. So now oh, I've twisted. I see it. how they dare. And they're it. they're even doing the kind of the same situation with the Wonder Years. It's getting a reboot, but now instead of focusing on a white kid and his family in the seventies, it's focused on a black kid in the set. I think okay. it's the seventies. So that's interesting. And that kind of brings me back to last week. You mentioned uh, Spider Man mm -hmm. and Miles Morales, and how you what was it Miles Morales? Yeah. Okay. Appreciated the fact that it's like a new Spider Man yes. and not the old Spider Man. Where I don't disagree with you, but I would say there is an opportunity to reboot Spider Man as a a black Spider Man or Hispanic Spider Man or whatever the case is. But I think it would be most interesting if it were if he were placed back in the timeline, going back to the 1960s. So what would it mean for Spider-Man to have been black in the 1960s? What would it mean, or what would the story be, uh, all the ramifications, if he were not the white Spider-Man from the 1960s? So that's an interesting story that I think has a place. Otherwise, I agree with you that, you know, if we want to place... If we want to make a new Spider-Man or a black Spider-Man and you want it to be in the present day, then just make a new Spider-Man. Mm. Um, that's fine. Uh, so that it kind of going back to the Wonder Years, which took place in the 1960s, white family in the suburbs. Of course, that's the story that was told in the 1980s when the Wonder Years, when the Wonder Years came out. And there was no. Yeah. So it makes sense to me to reboot the Wonder Years nowadays as a black family. As long as they go back to the 1960s, uh, right. you know, otherwise it's telling mm -hmm. a story. Does that make sense? No. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, something that they are actually actively working on, I don't know if you heard about this, but there was talk that J.J. Abrams was looking to do a Superman movie, but then he got involved with, I uh, can't remember the name of the writer, and I'm going to mess it up. Hang on, let me let me do some some Google searching, cause I need a name. It's right there in the the tip of my tongue. The, the cerebral cortex, the frontal yep. lobe. It's like the tip I know. Of your 
because I feel like if I say it, I'm just going to mess it up if I, if I try to be like, oh, it's okay. Even looking at it, I, I don't know if I can say it. <laughs> Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yeah. Okay. It's actually Ta-Nehisi Coates, but it looks Ta-Nehisi. like Ta-Nehisi Okay, thank you. Um, they are actively working together to write a black Superman film. And mm. to my knowledge, they want to set it back in the 19... 19- fill in the blank they didn't specify right i feel like you should go back to the anywhere. 1930s yeah because that's when it all it's such began. a long-running character but it, it would be it doesn't matter like there's the racial dynamics could play oh well they can play nowadays yeah but you have a you have a um a range <laughs> that yeah, you yeah, can yeah. go back to and reboot that story the reboot that and tell it from a black perspective mm-hmm. and it would have resonance um ta Coates, by the way, has been writing, I don't know if he's still writing it, but he he took over the Black Panther yeah. several years ago for Marvel and had been writing their regular Black Panther series. Mm-hmm. And I think he's done some, I don't know if he's still writing uh, Black Panther or if he's moved on to other stories, but. I don't know. Um, but I, di- I did kind of, I was interested about it, about the approach, because when they said J.J. Abrams got involved, I don't have a problem with the guy, but. I feel like he's one of those directors that people are kind of eyeing now just for anything. So what did he do? He did, it was Star Trek. And then when he did, oh my God, Star Trek is just something so new now. And then we're going to make him do Star Wars. And then he did Star Wars. It's like, oh my God, he did great for Star Wars. So now he's just like the go-to guy to reboot stuff. And yeah, uh, he, his whole shtick, I think was like a um, contemporary Spielberg. So yeah. Uh, he, you know, he worked on Lost and then I think he did, um, Super 8. I can't remember. Yeah. Super 8. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know if there was another, there must've been another big movie in between Super 8. And then when he got actually signed on to start doing the big franchises. Didn't he do, uh, he, he did a Mission Impossible movie, right? I don't I know. Possibly. feel like he did, but it's, I, yeah, I'm it's not going to swear to it. But yeah, he's, uh. He doesn't have a very distinctive voice or a very distinctive style. Except for lens flares. <laughs> the lens flares, the anamorphic lens flares are huge for him. But that's, you know, that's a very superficial style. <laughs> so, yeah, when he gets called in, I feel like that's when the corporate heads are wanting to play it safe. Mm. And wanting to make a big return. Which, of course, they want to do. But they don't want to rock the boat. So right. I think that's sort of J.J. Abrams' wheelhouse there. And and he's I'm not gonna say that his movies aren't great, but they yeah, are Super very 8, Super Eight was a great movie. Yeah. Well, it wasn't great, but it was a that was a fun movie, and it was like it was a reinvention of that '80s Spielberg adventure flick. Yeah. You know whether it was uh, Raiders, Indiana Jones, or uh, what else? I guess Jaw. Going back to the '70s, I guess. Mm. But it's like you said, he's he's a safe bet. He's someone that they can kind of rely on to be like, okay, well, what are you going to do to tap into that nostalgia and and get people to kind of come back and be like, oh, we feel so good about this and and kind of bring in the cash cow. I mean, the problem, the obvious problem is that if you are trying to reinvent Superman or tell a black Superman story, why the fuck would you? Call J.J. Abrams. Yeah, exactly. And, and <laughs> you know, they, they that's why they got the black writer now. <laughs> Keep that in mind. It's like, well, I don't okay. know. Well, as long as you got a black that. writer, 
But but why not get a black director? Why not hire the fucking people who made Black Panther? Yeah, exactly. Because Ryan Coogler is a very talented director. The man has done mm. a lot of good work outside of Black Panther. If you've not seen Fruitvale right. Station, shame on you. Yeah. So and Creed and Creed and that was that one blew my mind because I mean we're yeah. talking about something that technically would be a remake in a sense, if not a sequel. Depending yeah. on how you want, because that that one kind of blurs a line, honestly. Mm-hmm. But it's a sequel slash kind of that's that's another term I don't like, soft reboot. But I guess in a way it is because he's the underdog, and then he gets into the fight, and then he just he does his thing. You're right. I mean, it is a soft reboot. That movie would never wouldn't be what it is if it weren't Rocky affiliated. I mean, that's the whole reason. Uh, for its existence yeah and and i'm surprised but it's a great movie it's a great movie it is so that uh, to spoil things about the topic today there's been a ton of freaking great remakes yeah (laughs) Yeah. or reboots or whatever you want to call it but at the same time there have been a slew of terrible oh of course but so i guess that that's the topic i want to kind of touch on with what we're looking at here because Obviously, Hollywood's looking at remakes and reboots as a cash cow. They see something as a safe bet versus going for something original because the remakes or the reboots, it's it's a it's a known franchise. It's it's made money in the past. And they're like, hey, this will work again. And even sometimes it doesn't because I'm, I'm going to like drag just the, the first great example of a I don't want to say a failed franchise, but something that I don't feel like had the opportunity to really grow like it should, or they didn't have the proper studio behind it. And then they attempted to reboot it and it still didn't find its footing. But yeah, they, we continue to do this trend. Hellboy uh, is mm-hmm. got two sequ- you know, two movies out of, uh, out of an original uh, with Gilmer del Toro, talented director. First movie uh, from what I hear was studio interfered. Second movie, studio stayed out of it, and it's, in my opinion, the the superior film out of the two because he was allowed to just go wild and then be creative. But for whatever reason, it just didn't find its footing. Therefore, the, the studio found it to be a gamble. Fast forward X amount of years later, and now we have a reboot, which again, in my opinion, not a bad movie, but it's... I, I kind of wanted to see the end of what we were already kind of building toward. So now we're left in limbo with this one sequel that never happened. And we got a subpar reboot. So why? I guess my big question is why Why do we continue to, why do they continue to go down this road of taking a gamble on remakes, reboots? Because they're not all winners. Versus taking a gamble on something original because they could. I don't see the statistics going one way or the other. No, we talked about this before too. Like it's a, it is a gamble. Hollywood is always a gamble. Making movies is a gamble, and I think they're looking for. It's not a sure bet. It's not a safe bet. Well, it's a safe bet, and it totally comes down to execution. Um, who gets who gets brought on the script, the screenplay, who writes it, how is it written, who directs, who produces, all these things 
the execution is such a huge deal because uh, in preparation for this thing, I was like, you know, Googling best remakes. And there's a ton of great remakes, yeah. a ton of great reboots. And it all just depends on all those factors that I just mentioned. And then you can Google worst remakes. Why did the Robocop remake suck? <laughs> um, why did Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, I'm just, I'm just scrolling through the list here. Old Boy, and Old Boy was remade, remade by a, a great film director. Yeah, it was. Ghostbusters, Charlie's Angels. A lot of it has to do with like the strength of the original IP also has something to do with it. And whether or not it actually fits into the present day. Like why make, why remake Charlie's Angels? Yeah. Um, this day and age. And it's been rebooted, what, twice now? Actually, there was a mid-2000s, early 2000s, Charlie Angels. And then there was a one that came out a couple of years ago. And it was like diminishing returns after the first one and then diminishing, diminishing returns on the second one, Red Dawn. It's like these movies speak to their time frame. And I think they they want, of course, the producers of these movies, the creators are savvy. So they understand that. But whether or not they can tap into it or whether they can actually make it uh, resonate with the current time is another thing. And I think that what Hollywood, they often get in their own way where everything is focus tested. Everything is written and rewritten. It's written by committee. Uh, it's shown to test audiences. All these things kind of like sand off what made these movies, movies great in the first place. And they just get, you know, they're marketed to death. Yeah. And I think that's a huge thing where the movies, the remakes don't always work because of the whole process. It's corporate. Yeah. And corporations don't have a really great track record of creating anything that's worth a damn. So, <laughs> or worth seeing. Yeah. Uh, I think I just put my foot in my mouth. Of course, corporations make stuff that people want, like iPhones and whatever. But <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole nother... <laughs> So let me ask you this about remakes and reboots, in your opinion, because I have I have a few floating opinions. If if you were to approach a remake or reboot, and I really don't know what the difference is, honestly, I feel like it's just different terminology for whatever yeah. works. If you were approached to remake something, would you look to remake it? within the confines of what had been done prior or would you try to take elements which make it work and then do something new with it because in my experience with remakes i feel that sometimes it works both ways mm. and i've not quite figured out why and it's weird like i can't wrap my head around it well, yeah, I don't think there's a right answer. I think it's a combination of all the things that you just mentioned. You have to take into account what made it successful, uh, what made it resonate with people in the first place. Otherwise, why do it? But then again, you also have to make it relevant and new and fresh, whatever buzzword you want to apply to it. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, what's the point? So... Uh, well, of course, the point is to make money, but yeah, there's a combination of those things and whatever, however, the whatever special sauce, whatever salsa has to get stirred up to make it work again. I don't know. You know, it has to be, it has to do with the 
whoever's working on it, they have to come up with the recipe that makes it succeed. To the, the impetus, I think, you know, I, there is a money making impetus, of course, but I think a lot of it is sometimes people really want to make something. They really love the source material mm-hmm. and they want to redo it. They want to make it contemporary. They want to put their own spin on it. And that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of conflicting motivations. And there's some combination that makes it work versus not. But great example of that, which I honestly feel like is a it's a tedious effort. And I don't understand why they did it, because I felt like this director was talented enough on his own to do this. Um, on his own and put his own spin on it, but to remake something shot for shot, almost entirely psycho by Gus yeah. Van Sant. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, it hurt my brain. Cause I'm like, dude, why are you remaking the exact movie? Contemporary? Sure. But you, you shot for shot. It's almost the exact same movie. And I just, it made me angry because I'm like, I didn't come to watch this movie again that I've seen just in color with new right. actors. I wanted to see something new. Yeah. And that's an interesting example. And Gus Van Zandt is a, he's a smart filmmaker. So yeah. I'm sure he had a reason for doing it that way. And I'm sure, you know, if we look for it, he would say something like, this is, this is what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. But it didn't work, you know? Yeah. It is a direct copy of the original film so why even bother right and and i will say this someone else had to have this mindset um it's been a long time since i had seen the remake of psycho i think i saw it uh initially when it like early on when it first came out and Mm -hmm. that was the last time i watched it because it was like i'm not gonna watch this again because if i'm gonna watch any version of psycho i'm gonna watch the original because that's the superior version in my opinion but the cop the la- one of the last times I watched um, Psycho, the the police officer that comes up to Marion Crane's car and knocks on the window just to see if she's okay because she's sleeping on the side of the road. I looked at the actor and I was like, damn, he's a dead ringer for James Remar. And if you don't know who that is, it's fine. He's one of those character actors that's off in the background. But sure enough, you look up the cast for psycho the remake and he is the cop in that movie and i was like holy shit that is cool because they saw it too Mm -hmm. so outside of that it's just a a weird anecdote but well it seems yeah that's probably the reason for that movie being made was just this it's almost like a it's a very self-indulgent way to remake a movie where especially hitchcock movie who can we cast to make it look just like you know, the original yeah. or who would be the most the dead ringer for the guy who originally played, you know, it's like this exercise in recreating a movie that is more interesting in your head than it is actually to make. So <laughs> and they could have just written it all down like this is who we would cast. This is how we would shoot it. And, you know, that would be the result as opposed to the fact they actually made it. And what's but, funny about it is if they'd have waited just a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you've ever noticed this, but Andrew Garfield. Mm-hmm. He is a dead ringer for Anthony Perkins. Yeah. I swear to God, he <laughs> is. 
it's it's uncanny. Yeah. It's just so uncanny. So <clears throat> they just they they remade it too damn early in my opinion. Yeah. But uh, here neither here nor there. Anyway. But well, you know, <clears throat> speaking of just googling, did they remade Point Break? Yes, they did. <laughs> what? Yes. Like what? why? Why? Exactly. And, you know why? And just looking, so there's a a, a photo, uh, you know, of original scene with uh, Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves, and the remade scene with Jake Gyllenhaal, I guess it is, and is I don't it? know who the other actor is. But in the same scene, and it's just like the color grading is just like it just slaps you in the face with modern filmmaking versus when. Color grading wasn't a thing. You shot the movie on film and this is how it fucking looked versus like, oh, let's make it blue and all this. Yeah, it's like, fuck off. You know, like it looks like it looks so stylized and shitty versus real. And yeah, it just everything wrong with modern filmmaking is in, in, encapsulated in the fact that A, they remade Point Break and B, this is how they remade it. Fair Here's enough. <laughs> But yeah, I mean that's that's where it kind of seems like we're going now because anytime I hear about a reboot or a remake, it's like, well, what else can you remake? And it's like, well, uh, anything. And they just they shoot for the stars. While we're talking about reboots, there was another one I wanted to kind of bring up as it was kind of on my mind, as something that I would consider a superior version in a manner of speaking, because it's still kind of flawed, but it has elements to it that i feel like they improved on with the original and that's king kong that's uh peter jackson's 2005 remake now granted this is the second remake at that time and while he can get a little long in the tooth with his story and that can turn people off i can kind of let it go and just kind of sit through it i'm okay with it I appreciate what he's trying to do, the world building and trying to get to know these characters a little bit more. Some characters I don't feel like are necessary, but again, I can let it go. The one thing I feel like he did right, and considering this was the second reboot, I don't understand how no other director or writer thought to do this. But in his version of King Kong, he made Anne Darrow feel like she actually cared about Kong. And I never got that out of the, origi the original film or the remake. They always felt like they were sympathetic to him, but when push came to shove, they're like, no, don't touch me. But she actively sought him out. She actively tried to protect him. She felt like she cared about his well-being. And that meant a lot in the overall grand scheme of things, especially when you come down to that last line, it was beauty killed the beast. She loved him. He loved her. Boom. That's what it boils down to. And I felt like he really nailed that, unlike previous iterations of the film. And I just, it's odd that, like, in, in the 30s, I can kind of understand you're just trying to go for the damsel in distress scenario i get that but in the 70s why didn't you kind of think about that i don't know i different times i suppose but well i think that's what separates movies that resonate versus movies that don't is you have a perspective you have a point of view where a lot of times what gets lost 
and not only remakes but really any movie and it can it it goes across time time periods is that when things get made by committee when things get uh rewritten redirected all these kinds of things they lose any sort of point of view they lose any sort of uh distinctive voice and what i think you're describing comes through with peter jackson was like here is an original point of view on the story here's mm -hmm. what separates our story from what came before which you know when you look at a lot of these other remakes like you know robocop or total recall you have like these very distinctive you know and they might not be the greatest movies ever but like paul verhoven has a very he there's a point that he wants to make there is a an allegory mm. uh there's a lot of sarcasm there's a lot of uh criticism in his movies and they're kind of wrapped up in this very cheesy sort of sci-fi violent um package which i think he sells to the studio hey we're going to make this movie it's going to be awesome but underneath all of it i'm going to make this point and then that gets lost in the remake when all they want to do is tell the the kind of like surface level glossy big budget action thing with the shiny robots and the flying things but they lose the underlying point of it yeah so what's whatever you know that's that's the difference between the ones that work versus the ones that don't and yeah we could go down the list of remakes that suck in in comparison to their originals or there's a an equally long list of remakes that work like you mentioned with king kong but it all comes down to you know somebody or a group of people who who were able to retain or enable to or they were able to actually say something yeah that, that matters that resonates with people mm. And I think that's the biggest problem with a lot of them is they miss the point on a lot of those. You you made a very good point with Robocop because mm -hmm. there's so much satire in the first movie. Second movie, they, they dabble with it a little bit, and I think it gets a little lost, but at least they try to maintain that somewhat. And I think that's yeah. what kind of made—like, I'm a defender of the second Robocop. I know that some people don't like it, but I feel like they're trying to—, to I guess hit that same mark and they might miss it here and there, but they, they try. And then the third that just falls off. And then that's where we get into the remake uh, category where they don't understand what this was about. It wasn't about just a man turning into a machine and becoming RoboCop. There's so much more going on there. Take a look mm -hmm. at Starship Troopers. That's, laced with so much satire and i feel like he gets lost on the wrong audience yeah but a lot of these remakes and reboots that come about the ones that do not work are the ones that i feel don't have an original voice an original yeah. idea to really take the the concept and and turn it into something else terrible example or a great example of a terrible remake in my opinion is the lion king <laughs> this was a an exercise in seeing how far we can push technology, but that's all we're doing. The story doesn't matter because we're going to use the exact same script that we had originally, and we're just going to reread it with an entirely new cast, save for one actor, and then there you go. And it's, I can't watch it again. I, I watched it once, and I will never do it again because it was just so tedious. I've seen this movie and I've seen it much better 
with more emotion in an animated character. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't make any sense why you're doing this. I I, I guess the idea of remaking the exact same thing that had been done prior to the letter drives me up the wall, especially when they cherry pick things, because this does it almost exclusively, and then they'll stop, and then they'll add in a few things, and then they'll go right back to this, and it's like, why why don't just rewrite the damn script, please? Because you're almost there. You're, you're just peppering in new lines to kind of fit your narrative at the moment. But then you'll go right back to, ah, Huda, Kuna Matata, see that? Wow, well, look what we're saying. We're saying that thing that you remember from the 90s. Don't bother. Because I don't I don't care. I really don't in this moment. And it's just, it's it's hard for me. I think another big thing is whether you your life actually spans the the original and the remake. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things, like when I was growing up, there would be a remake of a movie that I didn't, was made before my, my uh, lifetime. So it has a different resonance versus something like Lion King, where we saw the original and now we're around to see the remake. Mm-hmm. And versus like, you know, our kids, for example, maybe they didn't see the original. So the, the remake is the new one. So that has a different resonance. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the remake is good. No. But uh, I feel like we are we are more like critical or upset by ones that encapsulate our actual existence <laughs> in a way. Oh yeah, I can I can see that. I would I would yeah, even I mean, say to a point that over time I found myself appreciating movies kind of like you said the the remake situation uh, i'll use king kong as another great example that the 76 version was kind of within the realm of my existence as a little outside of it but right there you know what i mean so it was kind of always there mm-hmm. but as i've gotten older i have a different appreciation for it versus the other two so I see what you're saying, but I feel like over time we can we can grow our opinions just just uh, if if we allow ourselves to. Yeah, and, and that wasn't a defense of the Lion King. I'm sure the no, remake no, no. is shit. <laughs> <laughs> and everything Disney's were doing with these live action remakes is is just purely a cash grab. There's yeah. no other reason to remake them in the literal way they're doing with live actors other than just to make money. There is no perspective there except <laughs> just the facts. capitalist capitalist perspective and that's Mm -hmm. the worst thing and look i'll even say there's there's a remake of a there's there's one film series okay if if there was ever a film series that needed a fresh remake uh for a film series of objectively bad movies it would be friday the 13th but i'm a sucker for it i love this stuff i love I know, I know they're bad. I know they're not great, but I love, I love the chaos that they ensue. They did a remake and the filmmakers knew exactly what they were doing. It's not a great movie, but they tapped into what made all those other movies, I guess, enjoyable for the fans. And they just stuck their guns. They said, you know what? People are here to watch Jason slaughter some people, uh, throw in a couple of boobs. And we're golden. 
And that's what they did. And you're just like, okay. I mean, it's not an original take on it, but they did a Friday the 13th movie just like we've seen time and again. So thanks, I guess. That, that's kind of a modern take. They, they, they really could have... Like, I've always thought, in my opinion, that if someone could write, and I've even wanted to do it myself, but I've just, I've been too lazy to do it. If someone could write an origin story for his mother, like how she got pregnant, how she, like, what was her childhood like, and all that stuff leading up to his death. And so I feel like that would be a fascinating story. But I just, you know... Someone's got to get there, and I, I've not been one of those people to take my time to do it. But I feel like it would be a fascinating tale if done right. But it's just not happening, and of course, there's legal matters that I wouldn't even get into right now that will stop that from happening right now. But I, I don't know. I mean, even even in the the simplest remakes of some of the shittiest properties, and I love Friday the 13th. Don't get me wrong, but I I admit it's low bar even paramount was uh, ashamed of it um <laughs> it's just they knew what they were doing you know there wasn't this uh, ability to create high art they were just like we're making a friday the 13th movie we don't have to do a hell of a lot more than just slaughter a couple of people and throw a couple of tits on the screen boom done and it worked that kind of goes back to some of the stuff we talked about before is like there was a, a range of movies that were made you know you had these you had a, a whole slate of movies across budgets, across genres that 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 uh, the studios would make in a given year, because it was cr sort of like crapshoot. Mm -hmm. So there was there was room, a little bit of room for horror movies, and there was no necessary. There wasn't like expectation that they would win an Oscar or whatever, but they were cheap to make, and they make they could potentially make a lot of money. I think. What what gets lost in a remake is the impetus for the original story. The impetus for the remake is either a love for the original story uh, and a desire to redo it, to put your stamp on it, or just like with Disney's sake, or in Disney's case, the desire to make money on something they know is going to make money. But what gets lost in either case is an original story that was told out of a need to tell that story. So I don't have a lot of knowledge of Friday the 13th, but going back just a little bit further, something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is, you know, reviled by a lot of people as just this god-awful, horrible, you know, slasher film. I think there's a lot in there whether it's acknowledged, whether it's conscious or whatever, that speaks to the time frame. Mm. Early 70s, Vietnam, uh, a country at odds with itself, you know, coming apart in a way at the seams. Tons of assassinations of, of, of uh, public figures. It's a very, it, it, you know, it's a time when a movie like that has a lot of, it's, psychologically if nothing else very full of meaning and sure. just to remake it at some random time in the future you kind of lose that so why not just tell a new story yeah. that speaks to the time in which you are living that's what sucks to me about the remakes like 
whether, like I said, whether or not a lot of the resonance or the meaning that people find in these movies was conscious, you can still go in and find it because of the period in which it came out of. Mm -hmm. And when you redo it, it doesn't necessarily have that same meaning. You do so go, yeah, tell a new story. I think that my take would be just fuck off with these remakes and tell a new story. Yeah. You you actually hit a nail on the head. Something I I don't know if I'd ever really thought about. But damn, if you're not right. I often am. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take a look at, I mean, using Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that is actually one of my favorite movies of all time. The first one and the second one, and I guess to a degree the third one, they stick to the year in which they're made. But then when you get to the remakes and then the re-sequels and whatnot, they're always trying to hang on to the legacy of the original film by going back to the 70s or, or saying, well, I think there was one that came out somewhere mid-2010, I think it was. It was supposed to be a 3D, and then they went back to the original, and it was supposed to tie into, well, this was like right after the end of the first one. So when you do the math, it doesn't add up because it's like, okay, so Leatherface would be 60 years old now, right? <laughs> and you're just supposed to think that he's he's still kicking and he's just still doing his thing, hiding off in the middle of a house. It just doesn't add up. So why not? Why are they always adhering to this old... They're re I don't even know if you know this. They're they're doing another Leatherface movie. And I don't remember what it's called. It's probably just Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever original ass name they want to call it. But they are <laughs> still adhering to the original. Saying that the, the the first movie happened, but now this is a sequel to that. Why? Just stop. Like this is one of those film franchises. The first one and the second one I love. Like, the second one was one of those hard uh, pills to swallow for a while because it was such a... Even though Toby Hooper did it, he he went, like, way off, you know, into left field with the second one. But I have a different appreciation for it now than I did when I orig initially watched it because I watched it back-to-back -back with the first one. And the third one, I can hit or miss. It's not, like, something I have to watch, but... I can appreciate it. It was trying, but eh. everyone after that, I don't, I could give a shit. Yeah. Cause they're all and just trying to recapture something that's not there. And I don't, I think you're right. They're, they're trying to capture something that just cannot be recaptured within that time frame. and why you keep trying. It's beyond me. Well, and not to, I, I disagree. Well, so your idea about telling the story of Jason's mother is potentially a good storyline. Like wherever you get the story, it doesn't matter. But the problem with that, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, let me disagree just a little bit, is that it requires some involvement or, uh, or just like interest in the story or knowledge of what, who the hell these people are. So, you know, maybe it doesn't, maybe you can tell it in a way that uh, somebody who doesn't have any uh, prior knowledge can still be interested in it. But the other thing about it is that for horror movies, and uh, especially where I think they lose the plot is when they over-explain the origins of anything. What makes them fascinating is that the horror doesn't need to be explained. 
that's what makes horror fucking horrifying is because it's unknown Mm -hmm. because it comes out of nowhere because it is an embodiment of your mortality that can just snatch that can just reach out of the ground and just snatch you and take you away. That's what makes horror fascinating. So knowing Jason's origins, knowing Freddy's origins, knowing uh, Leatherface's origins, it diminishes the story or diminishes the resonance of it. Mm -hmm. What makes it fascinating or horrifying is that it's random. Yeah. Which is, that's what horror is. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to, to disagree with you. Yeah, for, please do. For this for this one story, the reason I feel like with Pamela it would be slightly different is because I want you to really and again, it could diminish it because that I feel is where Rob Zombie made a horrible mistake with Halloween. Mm-hmm. By seeing Michael um as this troubled teen or troubled he wasn't a teen, he was a kid, still to see him in without having that um, that prior knowledge or just seeing him kind of coping with being bullied or just mm-hmm. having these mental episodes in, in the asylum or whatever, just being a kid that just went and stabbed his sister and he just lost it. There was just something eerie about that. But once you start to explore that, it, yeah. I agree. He just seems like this troubled kid who grew up and just went and there's nothing terrifying about that. Yeah, it makes it, it's not that that's not an interesting story, but it's no longer like a horror movie. Right. It's more like a psychological drama, like, mm. and it could be, a, it can be a, a fascinating story. It can be well told, all those kinds of things, but it it's not necessarily the same genre anymore. Yeah, no. And he becomes, he's not, he's not the boogeyman anymore. That, that was yeah. always the big hook with Michael Myers. He's the boogeyman. He just wonder mm. where he's coming from. Right. You don't have that boogeyman aesthetic anymore he's just some kid who grew up and he's just he's got an attitude problem right with pamela on the other hand at least in my opinion i feel like exploring her love for jason not not that you don't really see that in the movies but i feel like that just makes it more heartbreaking because when you really think about that that's what it's all about she's heartbroken that her son drowned and no one cared and that's where all this rage is coming from so from where I'm looking at it as a from a writer perspective, just just trying to understand from from the start to finish, like, what is it about him that she just loves so much? Why did she have this this deep connection? I understand it's her kid, but this was her world. And if you could just kind of build on that, you know, that idea that this was everything to her, you right. know, and watch her suffer and and the the pain and you feel that for her she right. no longer is the villain you're she's sympathetic in so many levels i feel like it would add an extra layer to her i'm so I, the, yeah again that kind of what i was saying like that's that's completely legitimate but take take the impetus take the origin or the the original movie and tell something new yeah you know there is a reason to make like i said before there's a lot of great remakes and what they did was take the original story and change it somehow, uh, expand on it, and make it relevant to people or interesting to people again. So I'm not trying to say that your idea is a bad no, idea. No, no. Uh, I'm just saying that a lot of the times with the horror movies, well, with a lot of movies in particular, there's a there is a tendency to over-explain in order to tell a new story, and then you just kind of lose what made the originals 
good in the first place. Yeah. So if you have something to say and you're taking your inspiration from something that has already existed, then that's fine. As long as you do something with it, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> as opposed to just telling the same thing again or over explaining or yeah, all those kinds of things that result in bad remakes or bad reboots or whatever you want to call it. I, I guess where I'm kind of coming from with a lot of these, if if you're going to remake something, figure out what you're trying to do to make it better, you mm -hmm. know? Put that and and that might be the approach that a lot of these people are coming from, but I don't feel that's necessarily their angle. But if I'm looking at a movie that I want to remake, what is it about it that I don't like? What is it about it that that just bothers me? Because if I feel like it's a perfect movie, then why do I want to remake it? Yeah, you know that's a good point. That's a good point. Because Jaws is one of those movies I I would find it very very hard. To hear the argument, I want to remake this. Other than just mm -hmm. to show the shark and be like, look at all the technology. Look, we can show the shark now. Okay, but yeah. why? Right. What are you You're doing better? <laughs> you know? And even even to, to some degree, some of the most simplistic stories, some of the most simplistic movies, one that comes to mind, going back to John Carpenter, Assault on Precinct 13. It's mm -hmm. a simple story. There's nothing to it. It's just these people stuck in this precinct or this this police station that's it's just about to be shut down and then they get ambushed by this gang because they're after a guy. It's that simple. There's nothing more to it than that. But then they remake it and they're like, oh, okay, but but see now there's a guy who's connected to somebody on the outside and then they're, they've got all these connections and ties and then there's a reason they're all there. It's like, yeah, but we don't need that. I mean, the the original did it just fine. There was a good good enough reason. They were just after a guy. You know, you've just overcomplicated a very simple story, and it didn't need to be done. And it's not as yeah. good, I don't feel like, because you lose that tension. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what made the original so good. So I feel like sometimes they overthink what they think is going to make it better. I'd love to, to to be in on these these pitch meetings <laughs> for these remakes and reboots. Well, I think that, you know, that 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 kind of dovetails on what I was saying about the horror movies is that you overanalyze it and you overcomplicate it by trying to tell origin stories when that's not the thing that's interesting. Yeah. You know, the, the story is the story and the origin behind the monster is not the story. See. The fact that he's going around killing everybody in the neighborhood, that's the story. Uh, and, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 or whatever, the story is, you know, it doesn't matter that you add a new wrinkle into it. It's just like what is the drama here? Yeah. Like, what is the complicating factor? How do the people change throughout the movie? Like, drama is drama. Mm -hmm. And if you if you can't identify what makes the drama compelling, then, you know, you're lost, regardless of whether you're telling a new story or a remake. But to thinking about horror movies, because horror movies are one is one genre that's, like, rife with remakes, and it, it kind of, you know, in, in the last 10, 20 years even before Disney got in the game, we're remaking stuff ad nauseum. But I can't think of any... I'm not a big horror fan. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of horror movies, but anything in the last 10, 20 years that has resonated with me has been an original story. Yeah. It's been... Um, it follows uh, The Babadook, uh, The Witch, um, and nothing like 
Friday the 13th remake or Halloween or mm-hmm. anything that came out. Those original movies still stand up, but the things that that still re- that the new ones are the new ones. Yeah. Not something that tried to to remake something that came before. Funny enough, as I'm sitting here thinking, as we're talking about this, you reminded me of it's it's kind of ironic if you think about it. Um, it was a couple of years back. They announced they were going to remake Child's Play, mm. which they did. And when it happened, the creator of Child's Play, Don Mancini, just kind of tweeted it and said, why are they doing this? Because he wasn't mm-hmm. involved. Like someone had the rights to remake Child's Play, not Chucky or just whatever, just Child's Play, because they had the film rights. And they were like, we're going to remake this. So he he just kind of casually was like, ah, who, who's asking for this? And I tweeted back, money. Mm-hmm. And he's like, exactly right. And I walked into that movie with that expectation that this is going to be a terrible remake but i actually kind of respected what they did because they didn't attempt to retell the original movie they took an entirely different spin on it instead of chucky being this soul possessed doll he was now an ai that is malfunctioning so his boy andy is telling him don't do that and he's trying to be good but he's conflicted by other things that he's sensing it's it you'd have to actually see it because it's it's kind of hard to explain but the way they played it out i was i was kind of intrigued by it i was like okay Mm -hmm. i'm i'm kind of digging what you're doing i appreciate this new twist on the idea as opposed to it being a real person. He's just a doll who is trying to think for himself because he's kind of a smart AI, but he, he can't grasp the human element of it. So when he sees something happen, and I think there was a scene in there where something violent was happening and the kids are laughing. He's like, Oh, a knife stat. That's what I got to do. That they'll make, they'll like me now. And he mm. just goes and grabs a knife. And he's like, ah! And they're like, holy shit, don't do that. And he's like, what? What did I do? He doesn't understand. So it was kind of an interesting take on it. Not saying I I like it better than the original, but I can appreciate that, you know? Yeah. There's a an original idea with the concept of Killer Doll. That's right. all you did. You said, I got Killer Doll. His name is Chucky. And go. And there's your idea. I think yeah. that's that's kind of a smart way to to maybe approach these in some way. Yeah, it, it's essentially taking a known quantity and and just and doing a completely different thing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is yeah, probably the best one of the better ways to do a remake is yeah, you have an established IP that you think is going to make some money just because people know it. There's some name recognition, but you make an entirely new movie. And as long as, like we've talked about, as long as you have a perspective, as long as it's something that resonates with people, then it could totally work. And that's the way to do it. Yeah. But that's not to say that all remakes and reboots are great. No. We're just, I don't know what the right way about it is. I would like to see more (laughs) original things because 
kind of to your point, what you were just saying earlier, some of the, the more original ideas you've seen here lately, they resonate with you more. They stick with you more. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's not even about like, I think there's a uh, misconception or about originality. It's not even necessarily about originality, but it's just telling something that's yours, that's yeah. new. And of course, everybody borrows from what they've seen and what they've experienced. Uh, nothing comes out of a vacuum, but telling an, telling your story, uh, telling something that comes out of your experience and the world that you live in, as opposed to trying to rehash something that's already been done. I think is always going to be more interesting yeah. than, yeah. One of one of the greatest ideas that I've seen here lately, and I didn't think I would like it, and it, we're kind of going back to horror movies. I apologize. <laughs> but for whatever reason, this was just the greatest mind-blowing idea I've seen in a long time. But there's a director, writer, director, Christopher Landon, and he's made three movies now, and he's uh, working on a fourth. He wrote and directed Happy Death Day, <laughs> Happy Death Day to You, and Freaky. Have you seen either of these movies? No. <laughs> okay. What he's essentially doing to create an original idea, and I say original because if you think about it, he's not taking the full plot of these movies. He's just taking the basic concept of what these movies are about and mishmashing. So the original idea for Happy Death Day and its sequel uh, essentially boils down to what if Groundhog Day was a horror movie? And when I first saw the trailer for it, I was like, ah, no, what? Like, I, there was something about it that just felt foreign, and, like, I, I got, like, I just didn't want to see that. I was like, no, 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 no. But then I gave it a, I gave it a shot, and I was like, holy crap, why did I not just watch this initially? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's bizarre, but in all the right ways, because you're taking this familiar concept, we all know, Groundhog Day, but now there's a killer on the loose, and every time she dies, she has to re-wake up the victim— or our final girl as she is, she wakes up right back where she was when she woke up that day and she's got to relive it. And she remembers everything. She's like, Oh my God, someone's trying to kill me. So it becomes this, I got to figure out who's trying to kill me within the confines of groundhog day. And it just seems original in a way, you know, just mishmashing the two ideas. Freaky is another one. He takes the idea of something like uh, Friday the 13th and mishmashes it with uh, freaky Friday. So the killer goes to kill the girl and suddenly they swap places because of some artifact. And now the killer is in her body and she's in the killer's body. So everybody's freaking out because like, oh, my God, it's the killer. And she's like, no, it's me. And Mm. it becomes kind of this horror comedy based on the Freaky Friday concept. But it works. It's just yeah, it's bizarre, but it works. And I think his his next film, if I'm. I could be getting this wrong, but I'm trying to remember exactly the two movies he said. I think he said Scream meets Back to the Future. Whatever that means, <laughs> I don't know, but I'm in because yeah. it just seems like a great idea to just instead of trying to remake something, taking concepts and mishmashing. It's original, at least from my my perspective. 
Yeah. And I think being uh, upfront about it, like this is my inspiration and this is what I'm doing with it. Cause yeah. every, you know, I, like I said before, like originality, I think is highly overrated. Everybody's stealing to mm. a degree from what they've seen. And this person is like, yeah, these are the, these are the influences that I'm taking, <laughs> but you're taking the influences and making something that's new, that's fresh, uh, telling it in a new way. And that's, that's how, that's how good stuff is made. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, I don't know how you take Scream, and that's an interesting one to begin with, because that's a, a satire in the first place. That's not necessarily a movie that was sincere. Mm-hmm. So you're taking a satire, which is based on slasher fi- uh, slasher films, and then something that's totally different, in <laughs> uh, a totally different genre, totally different uh, just mood and <laughs> tone and all those <laughs> kinds of things, and trying to mix those together. So I feel like you have a quite a stew yeah quite a salsa i guess the only thing i hope that doesn't happen is he becomes like um uh m night Shyamalan, where it becomes his thing like don't overdo this to the point where everybody's like oh well you gotta have a twist ending uh oh, yeah. you, you don't you really we don't. kind of know your thing yeah yeah it becomes formulaic i mean if this is his thing and it works out for him fantastic because i'm all in for it as long as they're entertaining but the whole twist ending thing got overrated pretty quick. Yeah. So you should probably just stop telling people, these are the influences that I'm taking and just start making stuff. <laughs> yeah, just start making stuff. <laughs> so, dude, last question I want to kind of bring up about all this. Since we've talked about the risk or the safe bet, as you kind of called it, with remakes and reboots, why would Hollywood or Hollywood execs those money people ever consider a reboot or a remake of something a safer bet than maybe a sequel? Oh, man. For example, That's... I mean, we, we use something like, we'll go back to the well and we'll, we'll pull from uh, Friday the 13th. So we had about 10 movies, and then they said, okay, reboot. And yeah, I know well... Jason went to space so, yeah, because at some point the re- the 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 sequels become absolutely ridiculous, yeah. and you can't, with a straight face, propose another yet another sequel. But why not lean into it? Because I will argue, what they did with the Chucky movies, they leaned into it. Because if anyone was to say that they jumped a shark at some point, that would have been Seed of Chucky, where he had a kid, and it were they were essentially playing. Uh, Sylvester and his son from the Looney Tunes kid, you know, he's, he's taking his kid out for a killing spree and the kid's like, I don't want to kill daddy. He's like, no, you're going to kill somebody. And it's that, that same dynamic. And it's, it's far, far removed <laughs> from the original film. Mm-hmm. But this is where we are now. They're just like, okay, we're leaning into it. It doesn't matter. We're, we're at this ridiculous stage. Why not? And then you get to that sequel of that film, which is Curse of Chucky. And somehow they bring it back around. And I'm so, like, well, I would suggest that there has to be some sort of uh, um, diminishing returns with the sequels. Like they stop making money. But that's, <laughs> so that's the weird part, though. It. As far as I'm concerned, now, granted, Seed of Chucky was the original. Well, it was the last movie in theaters, mm-hmm. not counting the remake. But Curse of Chucky was such a good movie. By comparison, <laughs> it's yeah. like they went, okay, well, here was our low bar. We got to go back up. 
And they did. And it was just like, holy shit, this is really good. So if you can do that, why not do that if possible? Do you think? Well, it's... I think they do. I think they keep making sequels until it stops working. Okay. Or, you know, like, I mean, who knows what's going on at these at these studios? Like, there could be a change of, like, a change of hands, like, where the executives move on, they die, whatever. So something that had momentum at one point loses momentum. That could It could just be a result of, you know, personnel who are, are there. Uh, it could be the people who are working on the film who have, like, you know, they have a relationship with people who can get the money. And that whole dynamic could change. So there's a whole lot of things that can happen on the back end that you really don't know about. And what happens with these reboots is like, well, like the the original franchise will just kind of lose momentum and kind of die out for a variety of reasons. And then after a fallow period, somebody with bright ideas like, oh, let's reboot this thing, you know? So I think it's like a combination of sort of like a natural death <laughs> and you know, maybe, maybe it loses steam financially. It stops working. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of different things that could happen there. Well, when you mentioned the studio situation, it almost kind of circles back around to what we started with the opportunity and luck, you mm -hmm. get the right people involved who want to make the thing and they want to make the thing and they do it. That could, that could also be a factor. Who knows? Yeah, and well, and there's also some the some franchises which have kind of straddled the line between sequels and reboots, like Fast and the Furious, which has gone through multiple iterations of like like name like sequential sequels and then sort of reboots that have become yeah, and it's like you know, and then they'll go back and and kind of rework or rename things to sort of you know extend the continuity where there really is no continuity; they're just kind of winging it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think like, yeah, I think it just has to do with how successful has this thing been? You know, Die Hard, that's still on its, there's not a reboot of Die Hard. They're still just making numbered sequels, right? To my After knowledge. 30 something years. Mm -hmm. I don't know. No, there's no, there's no good. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for you, but that's fine. There's a variety of factors, I think. It's, it's just fascinating when you see all these remakes happening and then yet you also hear at the same time. We're getting an Indiana Jones sequel. Sequel. Well, you want to wrap this thing up? Because by God, we've kept our audience for two hours almost. <laughs> but hey, it's fine. I, hopefully everyone's enjoyed this. Because I've, I've enjoyed talking about it. So to everyone listening, thank you so much. If you're listening and enjoying uh, us talking about cinema in its... Uh, purest form, if I if I may say so, because we're not just talking about one movie. We're talking about it all. We're having a conversation. We're having those conversations that you have with your best friend about whatever, and be like, "Oh, dude, you like that?" And uh, you like that. We're doing all that, and maybe even a little bit more. Maybe we're edu educating you in the process. I was about to say edutainmenting or something. I don't know where my brain. The beer, <laughs> but. Um, I'm not even going to mention the Twitter thing like I had before. Edu edutaining. Edutaining. There you go. Uh, the Twitter thing, it's still out there. You can, you can find us both on Twitter, Pencil Paper Productions or Pencil Paper Prog. And you're at, uh, what is it? Philip R. Peck. Philip R. Peck. I'm following him. You should be following him too. Go out there and just say, hey, guys, this is what I think of your opinions. And you can be hateful if you want. <laughs> I don't care. 
<laughs> Stick them up your ass. Mostly. Yeah. I'm oh, sorry. Hashtag cinema salsa. <laughs> Fuck you and your stupid opinion, cinema salsa. Hashtag. It's all engagement, right? It's all engagement. That's what we want. We want to hear your opinions. If you like what we got to say, if you like a remake, if you hate a remake, let us know and we'll talk about it. Or maybe we won't. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I need another beer. Anyway, I hope you will <laughs> join us again next week. But as always, until then, keep supporting your local theaters. We'll see you then next week. This has been a Pencil and Paper Podcast Network production.